Chapter 4 of The Way of Perfection by St. Teresa of Avila. This is a Discerning Hearts recording read by Chris McGregor. The Way of Perfection by St. Teresa of Avila. Translated and edited by E. Allison Pierce. Now, daughters, you have looked at the great enterprise which we are trying to carry out. What kind of persons shall we have to be if we are not to be considered overbold in the eyes of God and of the world? It is clear that we need to labor hard, and it will be a great help to us if we have sublime thoughts so that we may strive to make our actions sublime also. If we endeavor to observe our rule, and constitutions in the fullest sense, and with great care, I hope in the Lord that he will grant our requests. I am not asking anything new of you, my daughters, only that we should hold to our profession, which, as it is our vocation, we are bound to do, although there are many ways of holding to it. Our primitive rule tells us to pray without ceasing, provided we do this with all possible care, and it is the most important thing of all, we shall not fail to observe the fasts, disciplines, and periods of silence which the order commands. For, as you know, if prayer is to be genuine, it must be reinforced with these things. Prayer cannot be accompanied by self-indulgence. It is about prayer that you have asked me to say something to you. As an acknowledgment of what I shall say, I beg you to read frequently and with a good will what I have said about this thus far, and to put this into practice. Before speaking of the interior life, that is, of prayer, I shall speak of certain things which those who attempt to walk along the way of prayer must of necessity practice. So necessary are these that, even though not greatly given to contemplation, People who have them can advance a long way in the Lord's service, while, unless they have them, they cannot possibly be great contemplatives, and if they think they are, they are much mistaken. May the Lord help me in this task, and teach me what I must say, so that it may be to His glory. Amen. Do not suppose, my friends and sisters, that I am going to charge you to do a great many things. May it please the Lord that we do the things which our Holy Fathers ordained and practiced, and by doing which they merited that name. It would be wrong of us to look at any other way or to learn from anyone else. There are only three things which I will explain at some length, and which are taken from our Constitution itself. It is essential that we should understand how very important they are to us in helping us to preserve that peace both inward and outward, which the Lord so earnestly recommended to us. One of these is love for each other. The second, detachment from all created things. The third, true humility, which, although I put it last, is the most important of the three and embraces all the rest. With regard to the first, namely, love for each other, This is of very great importance, for there is nothing, however annoying, that cannot easily be borne by those who love each other, and anything that causes annoyance must be quite exceptional. 
if this commandment were kept in the world, as it should be, I believe it would take us a long way towards the keeping of the rest. But, what with having too much love for each other, or too little, we never manage to keep it perfectly. It may seem that for us to have too much love for each other cannot be wrong. But I do not think anyone who had not been an eyewitness of it would believe how much evil and how many imperfections can result from this. The devil sets many snares here, which the consciences of those who aim only in a rough and ready way at pleasing God seldom observe. Indeed, they think they are acting virtuously, but those who are aiming at perfection understand what they are very well. Little by little, they deprive the will of strength, which it needs if it is to employ itself wholly in the love of God. This is even more applicable to women than to men, and the harm which it does to community life is very serious. One result of it is that all the nuns do not love each other equally. Some injury is done to a friend is resented. A nun desires to have something to give to her friend or tries to make time for talking to her, and often her object in doing this is to tell her how fond she is of her and other irrelevant things, rather than how much she loves God. These intimate friendships are seldom calculated to make for the love of God. I am more inclined to believe that the devil initiates them so as to create fractions within religious orders. When a friendship has for its object the service of his majesty, it at once becomes clear that the will is devoid of passion and indeed is helping to conquer other passions. Where a convent is large, I should like to see many friendships of that type. But in this house, where there are not and can never be more than 13 nuns, all must be friends with each other, love each other, be fond of each other, and help each other. For the love of the Lord, refrain from making individual friendships, however holy, for even among brothers and sisters such things are apt to be poisonous, and I can see no advantage in them. When they are between other relatives, they are much more dangerous and become a pest. Believe me, sisters, though I may seem to you extreme in this, great perfection and great peace come of doing what I say, and many occasions of sin may be avoided by those who are not very strong. If our will becomes inclined more to one person than to another, this cannot be helped, because it is natural. It often leads us to love the person who has the most faults, if she is the most richly endowed by nature. We must exercise a firm restraint on ourselves and not allow ourselves to be conquered by our affection. Let us love the virtues and inward goodness, and let us always apply ourselves and take care to avoid attaching importance to externals. Let us not allow our will to be the slave of any sisters, save of him who bought it with his blood. Otherwise, before we know where we are, we shall find ourselves trapped and unable to move. God help me. The epiritolitis which will result from this are innumerable. And because they are so trivial that only those who see how bad they are will realize and believe it, there is no point in speaking of them here except to say that they are wrong in anyone and in a prioress 
pestilential. In checking these preferences, we must be strictly on the alert from the moment that such a friendship begins, and we must proceed diligently and lovingly rather than severely. One effective precaution against this is that the sisters should not be together except at the prescribed hours, and that they should follow our present custom in not talking with one another or being alone together, as is laid down in the rule. Each one should be alone in her cell. There must be no workroom at St. Joseph's, for although it is a praiseworthy custom to have one, it is easier to keep silence if one is alone and getting used to solitude is a great help to prayer. Since prayer must be the foundation on which this house is built, it is necessary for us to learn to like whatever gives us the greatest help in it. Returning to the question of our love for one another, it seems quite unnecessary to commend this to you, for where are there people so brutish as not to love one another when they live together, are continually in one another's company, indulge in no conversation, association, or recreation with any outside their house, and believe that God loves us, and that they themselves love God, since they are leaving everything for His Majesty. More especially is this so, as virtue always attracts love. And I hope in God that, with the help of His Majesty, there will always be love in the sisters of this house. It seems to me, therefore, that there is no reason for me to commend this to you any further. With regard to the nature of this mutual love and what is meant by the virtuous love which I wish you to have here, and how we shall know when we have this virtue, which is a very great one, since our Lord has so strongly commended it to us and so straightly enjoyed it upon us, about all this I should like to say a little now, as well as my lack of skill will allow me. If you find this explained in great detail in other books, take no notice of what I'm saying here. Or it may be that I do not understand what I'm talking about. There are two kinds of love which I am describing. The one is purely spiritual and apparently has nothing to do with sensuality or tenderness of our nature, either of which might stain its purity. The other is also spiritual but mingled with it are sensuality and weakness. Yet it is a worthy love, which, as between relatives and friends, seems lawful. Of this I have already said sufficient. It is of the first kind of spiritual love that I would now speak. It is untainted by any sort of passion, for such a thing would completely spoil its harmony. If it leads us to treat virtuous people, especially confessors, with moderation and discretion, it is profitable. But if the confessor is seen to be tending in any way towards vanity, he should be regarded with grave suspicion. And in such a case, conversation with him, however edifying, should be avoided, and the sister should make her confession briefly and say nothing more. It would be best for her, indeed, to tell the superior that she does not get on with him and go elsewhere. This is the safest way, providing it can be done without injuring his reputation. In such cases, and in other difficulties with which the devil might ensnare us so that we have no idea where to turn, the safest thing will be for the sister to try to speak with some learned person. If necessary, permission to do this can be given her 
and she can make her confession to him and act in the matter as he directs her. For he cannot fail to give her some good advice about it, without which she might go very far astray. How often people stray through not taking advice, especially when there is a risk of doing someone harm. The course that must on no account be followed is to do nothing at all. For when the devil begins to make trouble in this way, he will do a great deal of harm if he is not stopped quickly. The plan I have suggested, then, of trying to consult another confessor is the safest one if it is practicable, and I hope in the Lord that it will be so. Reflect upon the great importance of this, for it is a dangerous matter and can be a veritable hell and a source of harm to everyone. I advise you not to wait until a great deal of harm has been done, but to take every possible step that you can think of and stop the trouble at the outset. This you may do with a good conscience. But I hope in the Lord that he will not allow persons who are to spend their lives in prayer to have any attachment save to one who is a great servant of God. And I'm quite certain he will not, unless they have no love for prayer and for striving after perfection in the way we try to do here. For unless they see that he understands their language and likes to speak to them of God, they cannot possibly love him, as he is not like them. If he is such a person, he will have very few opportunities of doing any harm, and unless he is very simple, he will not seek to disturb his own peace of mind and that of the servants of God. As I have begun to speak about this, I will repeat that the devil can do a great deal of harm here, which will long remain undiscovered, and thus the soul that is striving after perfection can be gradually ruined without knowing how. For if a confessor gives occasion for vanity through being vain himself, he will be very tolerant with it in the consciences of others. May God, for his majesty's own sake, deliver us from the things of this kind. It would be enough to unsettle all the nuns of their consciences, and their confessors should give them exactly opposite advice. And if it is insisted that they must have one confessor only, they will not know what to do nor how to pacify their minds, since the very person who should be calming them and helping them is the source of the harm. In some places there must be a great deal of trouble of this kind. I always feel very sorry about it, and so you must not be surprised if I attach a great importance to your understanding this danger. Appendix to Chapter 4 The following variant reading of the Escorial Manuscript seems too important to be relegated to a footnote. It occurs in the twelfth paragraph of chapter four and deals, as will be seen, with the qualifications and character of the confessor. Many editors substituted in their text for the corresponding passage in V. As will be seen, however, it is not a pure edition. We therefore reproduce it separately. The important thing is that these two kinds of mutual love should be untainted by any sort of passion, for such a thing would completely spoil this harmony. If we exercise this love, of which I have spoken, with moderation and discretion, it is wholly meritorious, because what seems to us sensuality is turned into virtue. 
but the two may be so closely intertwined with one another that it is sometimes impossible to distinguish them, especially where a confessor is concerned. For if persons who are practicing prayer find their confessor is a holy man and understands the way they behave, they become greatly attached to him. And then forthwith the devil lets loose upon them a whole battery of scruples which produce a terrible disturbance within the soul, this being what he is aiming at. In particular, if the confessor is guiding such persons to greater perfection, they become so depressed that they will go so far as to leave him for another and yet another, only to be tormented by the same temptation every time. What you can do here is not to let your minds dwell upon whether you like your confessor or not, but just to like him if you feel so inclined. For if we grow fond of people who are kind to our bodies, why should we not love those who are always striving and toiling to help our souls? Actually, if my confessor is a holy and spiritual man, and I see that he is taking great pains for the benefit of my soul, I think it will be a real help to my progress for him to like me. For so weak are we that such affection sometimes helps us a great deal to undertake very great things in God's service. But if your confessor is not such a person as I have described, there is a possibility of danger, and for him to know that you like him may do the greatest harm, most of all in houses where the nuns are very strictly enclosed. And as it is a difficult thing to get to know which confessors are good, great care and caution are necessary. The best advice to give would be that you should see he has no idea of your affection for him and is not told about it. But the devil is so active that this is not practicable. You feel as if this is the only thing you have to confess and imagine you are obliged to confess it. For this reason, I should like you to think that your affection for him is of no importance and to take no more notice of it. Follow this advice if you find that everything your confessor says to you profits your soul. If you neither see nor hear him indulge in any vanity, and such things are always noticed except by one who is willfully dull, and if you know him to be a God-fearing man, do not be distressed over any temptation about being too fond of him, and the devil will then grow tired and stop tempting you. But if you notice that the confessor is tending in any way towards vanity in what he says to you, you should regard him with grave suspicion. In such a case, conversation with him, even about prayer and about God, should be avoided. The sister should make her confession briefly and say nothing more. It would be best for her to tell the mother superior that she does not get on with him or go elsewhere. This is the safest way if it is practicable, and I hope in God that it will be, and that you will do all you possibly can to have no relations with him, though this may be very painful for you. Reflect upon the great importance of this. Appendix to Chapter 4 The following variant reading of the Escorial Manuscript seems too important to be relegated to a footnote. It occurs in the twelfth paragraph of Chapter 4 and deals, as will be seen, with the qualifications and character of the confessor. Many editors substituted in their text for the corresponding passage in V. 
as will be seen. However, it is not a pure addition. We therefore reproduce it separately. The important thing is that these two kinds of mutual love should be untainted by any sort of passion, for such a thing would completely spoil this harmony. If we exercise this love, of which I have spoken, with moderation and discretion, it is wholly meritorious, because what seems to us sensuality is turned into virtue. But the two may be so closely intertwined with one another that it is sometimes impossible to distinguish them, especially where a confessor is concerned. For if persons who are practicing prayer find their confessor is a holy man and understands the way they behave, they become greatly attached to him. And then forthwith the devil lets loose upon them a whole battery of scruples which produce a terrible disturbance within the soul, this being what he is aiming at. In particular, if the confessor is guiding such persons to greater perfection, they become so depressed that they will go so far as to leave him for another, and yet another, only to be tormented by the same temptation every time. What you can do here is not to let your minds dwell upon whether you like your confessor or not, but just to like him if you feel so inclined. For if we grow fond of people who are kind to our bodies, why should we not love those who are always striving and toiling to help our souls? Actually, if my confessor is a holy and spiritual man, and I see that he is taking great pains for the benefit of my soul, I think it will be a real help to my progress for him to like me. For so weak are we that such affection sometimes helps us a great deal to undertake very great things in God's service. But if your confessor is not such a person as I have described, there is a possibility of danger, and for him to know that you like him may do the greatest harm, most of all in houses where the nuns are very strictly enclosed. And as it is a difficult thing to get to know which confessors are good, great care and caution are necessary. The best advice to give would be that you should see he has no idea of your affection for him and is not told about it. But the devil is so active that this is not practicable. You feel as if this is the only thing you have to confess and imagine you are obliged to confess it. For this reason, I should like you to think that your affection for him is of no importance and to take no more notice of it. Follow this advice if you find that everything your confessor says to you profits your soul. If you neither see nor hear him indulge in any vanity, and such things are always noticed except by one who is willfully dull, and if you know him to be a God-fearing man, do not be distressed over any temptation about being too fond of him, and the devil will then grow tired and stop tempting you. But if you notice that the confessor is tending in any way towards vanity in what he says to you, you should regard him with grave suspicion. In such a case, conversation with him, even about prayer and about God, should be avoided. The sister should make her confession briefly and say nothing more. It would be best for her to tell the mother superior that she does not get on with him or go elsewhere. This is the safest way if it is practicable, and I hope in God that it will be, and that you will do all you possibly can 
to have no relations with him, though this may be very painful for you. Reflect upon the great importance of this.